In a world where innocence can be shattered and life can take an unexpected turn, there is no pain more agonizing than the disappearance of a child. It tears at the very fabric of our humanity, igniting a collective desire to bring them home, to find solace amidst the chaos, and to restore hope in the face of despair. Welcome to The Dark Diaries, the podcast where the darkest stories shed the brightest light on our fears. In this episode, we delve into the story of a child who seemingly vanished without a trace, leaving a community bewildered and forever altered. The unfolding events will take us through a labyrinth of emotions, unearthing buried secrets, unspoken truths, and the raw vulnerability of those left behind. The world we live in can be a sinister place, lurking with enigmatic forces, but it is within these shadows that we strive to shine a light. Madeline Clifton, a spirited and lively young girl, possessed a kind heart. Born on June 17, 1990, in Jacksonville, Florida, she grew up during a time when parents granted their children the freedom to explore. She held a special place in the hearts of her parents, Sheila and Steve Clifton, who adored her and affectionately called her Maddie. Alongside her, she had an equally spirited 11-year-old, older sister named Jessie. Maddie was an extraordinary child, brimming with talents and a zest for life. Not only was she an active participant in various sports, particularly basketball, but she also possessed a gift for playing the piano. Her music filled the house, enchanting all those who heard her delicate melodies. Maddie effortlessly formed bonds with everyone she met. Her best friend was none other than her adored older sister, Jessie. Together, they were an unstoppable duo, tackling challenges and embracing each moment with unbridled joy. Taking place on November 3, 1998, the United States elections occurred amid Democratic President Bill Clinton's second term and amidst the Monica Lewinsky scandal. On that very same date, Maddie concluded an exhilarating day at school and arrived home around 4.30 p.m. Wanting to make the most of her day, Maddie diligently practiced piano as she did countless other times. The radiant sun continued to bathe the neighborhood in its comforting warmth. With a yearning to make the most of the remaining daylight, Maddie couldn't wait until after practice to go outside for more play. Maddie's longing for outdoor playtime couldn't be contained, and around 5 p.m. she decided to hit some golf balls down the street with neighbor Larry Grisham between her home and his. Maddie later left to retrieve more balls, and when she didn't return, Grisham assumed she must have headed home for dinner so he decided to go home himself. Maddie actually resumed playing in a different area but with one of the neighborhood boys named Joshua. He started playing baseball together with Maddie, under the watchful eye of her doting grandmother. The pair of kids were playing and laughing as they did a few times before. Reassured that that Maddie was safe, Grandma decided to step away momentarily, trusting that Maddie was in good company and within sight. Little did she know that her decision to turn away would become a haunting regret. Destiny had a different plan in store. Little did anyone know that the seemingly ordinary day would be etched into the depths of their souls as the day Maddie seemingly vanished without a trace.
Sheila Clifton, Maddie's devoted mother, lovingly called out to her two children, beckoning them to the dinner table. It was a familiar routine after a day filled with laughter and play. Usually, the front door would burst open, accompanied by the sound of excited footsteps as the kids rushed inside, their appetites ready to eat a delicious meal. But on this fateful evening, only Maddie's older sister appeared, leaving a void that sent shivers down Sheila's spine. This was out of character, as Maddie would always be excited for dinner and always be on time. Sheila was concerned, and inquired about Maddie's whereabouts from her own mother, who had been keeping an eye on the children. With a heavy sigh, her mother confirmed that she had indeed seen Maddie playing in the neighbor's yard about an hour ago. Time seemed to slow as dread crept into Sheila's consciousness. Fifteen minutes later, the realization took hold that Maddie may be missing or worse, kidnapped. Fear gripped Sheila's heart, her daughter was missing. With trembling hands she promptly called 911. Frantically, Sheila called out her daughter's name, her voice echoing through their home. Sheila held her breath at every room, opening the door expecting to find Maddie. When her desperate search within the house yielded no results, Sheila mustered her courage and raced to the neighbor's doorstep, seeking assistance in the search for her precious daughter. The minutes stretched like hours, each passing moment fueling the agony that consumed Sheila's heart. Fifteen minutes later, the realization took hold that Maddie may be missing or worse, kidnapped. Fear gripped Sheila's heart, her daughter was missing. With trembling hands, she promptly called 911. Jacksonville 911. Yes, sir. Hi. This is. Um, I uh, went out to play this this afternoon. I thought she was with. Her, and now she's missing. How old is she? She's eight years old. Where was she playing at? Around the right house? around the house here. Is she a white female or a yes, black female? she's a white female. What did she have on when she left? She had on a red t-shirt. And mama, did she have on jeans? Now, I've been upstairs, mama. I have searched. Ma'am? Yes. Blue jeans? Mama, did she have on blue jeans? What'd you have on? What kind of shorts? A pair of shorts? She had on a pair of shorts. And a red t-shirt. She blonde hair? Black no, hair? she's got uh, reddish brown hair. It's actually a, a brown with an auburn tint to it. What's it's her name? It's short. Her name is Maddie. She goes, it's Madeline. What's her last name? Clifton. C-L-I-F as in Frank T-O-N. When's the last time anybody saw her? What, Mama, what time did I come home from boating? About... 5.30, about 5, 4.30 to 5 o'clock, about 5.30 was the last time we saw her. And I was letting the kids play out here for a little while, and then she just, she disappeared, and nobody knows where she's at. Does she have any friends nearby? Did you go check? i got every neighbor out here right now. Okay, the police will be there shortly, ma'am. You keep looking, okay? Okay, do you, right. you know where I am? I mean, I'm at the corner of Fleetwood and... Stephen is right there. What is it? My husband just came home. And hold on just a moment. Oh, 
Honey, Maddie is gone. No. Okay, my husband just pulled up, but she's not with him, of course. Okay, the police are going to be there shortly, ma'am. You could hear the panic in Sheila's voice, a plea for someone, anyone, to bring Maddie home. As news of Maddie's disappearance spread like wildfire through the neighborhood, a sense of urgency took hold. The entire community rallied together, their collective determination igniting a surge unlike any other. Hundreds of volunteers, including the Army Reserve, fueled by compassion and a shared desire for Maddie's safe return, scoured every inch of the surrounding area. Parks, dumpsters, nearby forests, school grounds, culverts and manholes became the backdrop of this desperate quest. Yet, despite their valiant efforts, Maddie remained elusive, slipping through the fingers of those who longed to bring her home. The neighborhood usually filled with laughter and children's voices, now echoed with an unsettling silence, mirroring the emptiness that consumed the hearts of all who knew and loved Maddie. It was as if she seemed to have vanished into thin air. In a race against time, Maddie's description and portrait flooded the local news. Her vibrant personality was captured in every detail shared with the public, her toothy smile, freckles sprinkled across her cheeks, and her hair was short sporting a tomboyish length down to her upper lip. Maddie stood at 4 feet 5 inches and weighing 58 pounds, was a spirited 8-year-old, last seen wearing a red YMCA basketball shirt proudly displaying her name, Maddie, across the back shoulders. The number 5 adorned the back, centered, signifying her role as an unstoppable force on the court. Missing persons posters are promptly made and posted up all over town by family and friends in hopes that someone may have seen her. The anguish in Sheila and Stephen Clifton's hearts grew unbearable as they grappled with their worst fear, that someone had snatched their beloved daughter. As the investigation progressed, detectives naturally conducted interviews with the neighbors who had seen Maddie last. The following day, they systematically interviewed all the neighbors, going door to door. Larry Grisham found himself becoming the primary suspect primarily due to the fact that he was a 45-year-old man who still enjoyed interacting with the children in the neighborhood. His situation was compounded by his criminal history, which included auto theft, sexual battery, and multiple DUIs. Detectives meticulously searched Grisham's residence on numerous occasions and subjected him to lengthy interrogations spanning several hours. Adding to their suspicions, Grisham also failed a polygraph test. However, driven by a strong determination to prove his innocence, Grisham willingly provided a DNA sample and presented an airtight alibi detailing his whereabouts on the day Maddie disappeared. Despite his efforts, Grisham remained the primary suspect, as the investigation had not yet ruled him out. The other individual who had last seen Maddie was her playmate and friend, Joshua. The police spoke to Joshua and his parents Melissa and Steve Phillips, who willingly allowed a search of their sheds and property. However, the search yielded no significant findings. In the subsequent days, the police extended their search to the Phillips residence. 
They brought in cadaver dogs, specifically trained to detect the scent of deceased bodies in an effort to track any potential leads. While searching the Phillips home, the investigators noticed nothing noteworthy except for an unusual odor in Joshua's bedroom, which was attributed to his pet cockatiels. After the cadaver dogs thoroughly cleared the bedroom, the detectives promptly left the premises. Three days following Maddie's disappearance, Steve and Sheila Clifton stood before the public, holding a news conference outside their residence. With heartfelt gratitude, they expressed their appreciation to the dedicated volunteers and law enforcement personnel who had tirelessly devoted their efforts to search for Maddie. In their emotional address, the Cliftons made a heartfelt plea for Maddie's safe return, reaching out to whoever may have taken her. With hope in their voices, they implored the kidnapper to release Maddie, emphasizing the profound impact their actions had on both their family and the community at large. Maddie, if you are out there and you can hear us, we are ready for you to come back home, her sobbing mother said. Maddie is a very strong little girl. She is full of love. Maddie, please come home. If someone has Maddie, please let her go, Steve Clifton said. Let her go anywhere and run if you have to. I know with all the people out, she would be found immediately. In addition, a substantial cash reward was announced. This generous reward was offered to anyone who could provide valuable tips that would lead to Maddie's whereabouts. As detectives suspected kidnapping, a patrol car was stationed by the Clifton household around the clock in case the kidnapper would come back to harm Jesse. On the sixth day since Maddie's disappearance, detectives again interviewed the Phillips family, with one interviewing the parents while another detective separately interviewed Joshua in his bedroom. Once again, Joshua maintained that he had been playing with Maddie, but left shortly thereafter to go home and have a meal. According to Joshua, he never saw Maddie again after that point. On November 10th, both Joshua and his father had already departed for school and work shortly after 7 a.m. Meanwhile, Melissa Phillips had some free time in the morning before heading to work. Determined to address the persistent odor emanating from her son's room, she decided to take on the task of cleaning. It was a familiar situation, as teenagers and strange smells often went hand in hand. Melissa had reminded her son numerous times to clean his room, but like many other teenagers, he tended to procrastinate or neglect basic tidying. Upon entering the room, Melissa noticed a damp spot near the waterbed and thought it must be mold or mildew caused by a leaky bed. Upon closer inspection, she discovered some unexpected black tape, which seemed out of place. Puzzled, as she didn't recall seeing it before, she speculated that it might have been used to patch up the leak. Curiosity got the better of her, and Melissa began peeling back the tape. To her shock, a piece of the wooden panel in the corner fell open. As she moved closer, she noticed two white socks lodged in the opening. Intent on removing the socks to wash them, Melissa encountered unexpected resistance. 
She retrieved a flashlight to investigate further, pulling harder on the socks, only to be confronted with a horrifying sight. A pair of small feet became visible. Shining the light further, the truth became evident, beneath the bed lay the lifeless body of a young girl. Melissa knew instantly that it was Maddie. Imagine the horror and shock of discovering your own son hiding a dead body under his bed. Thrown into a state of panic, Melissa immediately left a frantic voicemail for her husband, urging him to return home without delay. She then rushed outside, desperately seeking the help of a police officer. At that time, officers were still present in the neighborhood, conducting interviews with the residents. Spotting a patrol car, Melissa approached it and managed to capture the attention of the officer, seeking immediate assistance. Upon entering Joshua's room, the officer was immediately met with the unmistakable stench of decomposition now that the body had been missing for seven days and the bed frame panel had been opened. Recognizing the gravity of the situation, the area was swiftly sealed off and forensic specialists were summoned to the scene. Melissa, overwhelmed with grief, could hardly fathom the idea that her own son could be responsible for such a heinous act. Joshua was swiftly apprehended at his school and placed under arrest. Prior to November 10th, he had been an ordinary ninth grader attending school and maintaining an average grade of C's. The moment the authorities discovered the body, they wasted no time in taking him into custody. In no time, he became the central focus of national news coverage, leaving those who knew him in a state of disbelief. Principal and teachers expressed the profound shock experienced by the students, who simply couldn't reconcile the idea of Josh being involved in such a heinous act. They repeatedly questioned, Josh, he was a baby-faced curly-haired boy that was silly and liked computers and his dog. He had never been in trouble with the law before this. The magnitude of the revelation left them unable to comprehend the gravity of the situation. The detectives faced the daunting task of delivering the devastating news to the Cliftons. In order to shield Jessie, they arranged for a detective to accompany her to a secluded location for dessert, ensuring that she would be spared from the harrowing details that were about to be conveyed to her parents. After being broke the news of their missing daughter, Steve asked the officers where she was found, to which the officers said, across the street. Overwhelmed with disbelief, Steve and Sheila were struck by the devastating blow that shattered their glimmer of hope for Maddie's survival. It was unfathomable, the entire Phillips family, including Joshua, had fervently assisted in the search for Maddie on the day she disappeared. Hidden within Joshua's bedroom, a treasure trove of damning evidence was discovered. Maddie's lifeless body lay curled in the fetal position under the water bed with her shirt pulled up and her panties down by her knees. There was also a multitude of items intended to conceal the odor. Among them were numerous cans of Febreze, odor eaters, Glade plug-ins, and various other air fresheners and deodorizers, along with incense sticks, all employed in a desperate attempt to mask the scent of decomposition. 
This combination of chemicals, compounded by the presence of odors emanating from pet bird feces and bird feed, likely rendered the decomposition smell undetectable to both the cadaver dogs and the investigators. This revelation shed light on why the detective, even six days after Maddie's disappearance, had been unable to perceive the telltale odor of death while inside Joshua's room interviewing him. Furthermore, concealed within the bed frame were rolls of tape, a Leatherman-branded knife multi-tool, and a missing person poster featuring Maddie. Tucked away discreetly behind a dresser, a baseball bat was also discovered. Adding to the unsettling findings, a photograph of Maddie's older sister, Jessie, which had been stolen from the Clifton residence, was recovered within Joshua's room. What could have led this young teenager, at the age of 14, to become a killer? What compelled him to commit such a heinous act and go to great lengths to hide his crime, feigning a search for Maddie, despite knowing she was already deceased and even resorting to using air fresheners to mask the stench of decomposition and sleep on the same bed that entombed her for seven days? Before this incident, Joshua's teachers described him as a kind boy. While he didn't excel academically, receiving average grades throughout his school years, he had never been involved in any trouble or had any encounters with the law prior to the discovery of Maddie's body. Joshua Earl Patrick Phillips was born on March 17, 1984, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where his parents, Steve and Melissa Phillips, were working as IT specialists. Alongside him were his two older half-brothers, Daniel and Benji, who shared a close bond despite their decade-apart age difference to Joshua. Due to financial difficulties, the family made the difficult decision to uproot themselves from Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, and relocate to Florida, severing Joshua's ties with his beloved half-brothers, who were left behind against their will. Steve Phillips, known for his strict demeanor, had a volatile temper and a fondness for alcohol. Alongside his explosive nature, he imposed strict regulations on Joshua, forbidding him from inviting other children over in his absence. Strangely enough, Steve harbored an unexplained animosity towards young girls, a sentiment shared by his wife and all three sons. Aware of the age disparity between Joshua and Maddie, Steve went so far as to advise Joshua against engaging in playful activities with her. Adding to their concerns, Joshua crossed a line by making an inappropriate sexual remark directed at Maddie's older sister, who was only 11 years old. As a result, the Cliftons strictly instructed their daughter to maintain her distance from Joshua. Joshua made a chilling confession to the murder of eight-year-old Maddie, providing a harrowing explanation for his actions. He admitted that while playing baseball with Maddie, that he accidentally struck her in the face near her left eye, resulting in her loud cries. Overwhelmed by the fear of his father's disapproval of their interaction, Joshua made the disturbing choice to take Maddie to his room. At this point, she was bleeding from her facial laceration and still crying loudly in pain. In an attempt to silence Maddie's cries and prevent further repercussions, Joshua struck her on the head twice with the baseball bat, causing her to quiet down momentarily while expressing pain through groaning. 
Unsatisfied with the level of noise reduction, Joshua pried off the side of his waterbed and placed Maddie's body underneath and proceeded to cut Maddie's throat with a knife to further silence her. Joshua's father arrived home during this time and would become aware of Maddie's labored breathing, audible from another room. Realizing the potential consequences, Joshua removed Maddie from under the bed and stabbed her in the lungs, ultimately ceasing her breathing. He explained that during the process of moving Maddie into his room, her shorts and underwear came off, while her shoes came off when he pushed her under the bed for the second time. Joshua's actions stemmed from his intense fear of facing trouble and the ensuing consequences of having another kid over when his parents were not home, especially his father. On November 14th, Maddie was buried in the same Catholic church on San Jose Boulevard where she had celebrated her first communion. Over a thousand people attended her funeral. Five days later, Joshua was officially charged with the first-degree murder of Maddie Clifton. Due to the severity of the crime, Joshua was to be tried as an adult, attracting nationwide attention once again to the Maddie Clifton story. It is important to note that, during that period, a conviction of first-degree murder automatically resulted in a life sentence for a boy deemed too young to be subject to capital punishment by the state. Autopsy findings were released on January 13, 1999, shed light on a starkly different narrative regarding the events surrounding Maddie's tragic demise. The examination revealed that Maddie had suffered from three distinct attacks. She had been struck three times, once on her forehead and twice on the top of her head, resulting in wounds that would have proven fatal approximately 30 minutes after being inflicted. Curiously, there was no evidence of any bruising near her eyes, contradicting Joshua's claim that he accidentally struck her with a baseball. The wounds on her neck had punctured her windpipe, leading to either fatal bleeding or suffocation in her own blood. Additionally, it was discovered that nine stab wounds to her chest and abdomen had been inflicted post-mortem. This finding aligned with Joshua's account and substantiated the fact that Maddie had still been alive when he callously placed her under his bed. To mitigate potential jury bias caused by the extensive media coverage of the murder case, the trial was relocated to Pope County. Commencing on July 6, 1999, the highly publicized trial concluded within a mere two days. During the trial, Prosecutors contested certain aspects of Phillips's account. They raised the possibility of a sexual motive for the murder due to the absence of dirt and sand on Maddie's body, refuting Joshua's claim that her clothes had come off as he dragged her into his room. They also highlighted Joshua's previous discussions about sexual matters with both Maddie and her older sister and claimed Joshua was obsessed with Jesse as he had kept a stolen photo of her in his room. Moreover, they emphasized the lack of blood in the backyard and on the baseball Joshua claimed to have hit Maddie with, asserting that this contradicted his version of events. Prosecutors made an effort to portray Joshua as someone who had a deliberate intention to kill, rather than attributing his actions to panic or impulsivity. They highlighted the callous nature of the attacks, which were divided into three distinct episodes. In support of their argument, they presented evidence from the autopsy report, 
revealing the multiple severe injuries Maddie had endured. Additionally, they pointed out Joshua's active participation in search parties and his attempts to conceal his crime, indicating a level of sophistication and deception. These factors were utilized by the prosecutors to suggest premeditation on Joshua's part. The defense sought to introduce brain scans from a neurologist, indicating bilateral lesions on Joshua's frontal lobe which is associated with panic and impaired judgment. This was a desperate attempt to attribute the murder to poor impulse control due to the intense fear of Joshua's father. The prosecution also wanted to discuss the evidence found on his computer which showed that Joshua viewed violent pornography of cheerleader brutality just prior to Maddie's murder. In my Night Stalker episode we also touched upon how being exposed to violent pornography can significantly impact the minds of young individuals. This is due to children's inherent ability to learn by observing and imitating the behaviors of others. Research conducted on young people who encountered pornographic content revealed that they were six times more likely to exhibit sexually aggressive behaviors towards women, such as harassment and violence. Moreover, such exposure is likely to hinder their capacity to establish and maintain healthy relationships. It is reasonable to infer that the risk of young individuals demonstrating these sexually aggressive behaviors towards women would further escalate if they were exposed to violent pornography depicting rape, as opposed to non-violent pornography. In the end, the judge ruled that both pieces of evidence were inadmissible in court. The defense for Joshua did their best to mitigate the severity of the crime. There was no denying that Joshua killed Maddie, but the circumstances behind it could determine if Joshua faced a first-degree murder charge or a lesser offense. The defense maintains that the killing was, quote, an act that began as an accident and deteriorated through panic that bordered on madness. This was due to Joshua's fear of his father finding out he had a playmate over. After deliberating for slightly over two hours, the jury reached a guilty verdict on the first-degree murder charge against Joshua Phillips. In the following month on August 20th, the judge sentenced him to life imprisonment without the chance of parole. Joshua would be one of the youngest persons to be given such a harsh sentence at age 14. After Maddie's tragic death, the lives of those connected to her and Joshua took a downward turn. Jesse felt her identity fading as people suddenly became interested in her only after the incident. Melissa, Joshua's mother, tried to escape society's judgment by isolating herself. However, encounters with strangers, including a heartfelt embrace in a church, provided some solace. Jessie supported Melissa during her isolation, assisting with daily tasks and maintaining a warm relationship. Both women shared a bond of loss after Maddie's passing. Further turmoil struck as Melissa's husband died in a car accident and Steve and Sheila Clifton divorced, disrupting their once close-knit family. Sheila moved away from the Phillips residence, while Steve recently left the house, leaving Jessie as the sole occupant, planning to purchase it. Despite the hardships, the house remains a cherished place full of treasured memories for Jessie. 
This was also a case that weighed heavily for prosecutors, who after learning about the development of young minds, debated if they did the right thing by pursuing a first-degree murder charge and sentencing of life without parole on a 14-year-old child. During his time in prison, Joshua obtained his high school diploma and became certified as a law clerk by the Department of Corrections in 2003. He teaches GED science and math to fellow inmates and also assists them with their appeals. He has continually participated in rehabilitation programs and demonstrated a lack of antisocial behavior. By all accounts, he was a model prisoner. When asked for his motive for murdering Maddie, he could not offer an explanation, he just remembers feeling confused and scared as a 14-year-old. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court found that mandatory life sentences for juveniles were unconstitutional. This meant that Joshua would be eligible for a resentencing hearing. However, judges were still allowed to issue life sentences based on all the circumstances of the case. There was hope that one day Joshua could walk a free man. The Clifton family strongly opposed the possibility of Joshua being released from prison one day, as they believed that since Maddie received no mercy, then neither should he. In 2017, Joshua's resentencing took place, and the judge upheld the original life without parole sentence. The reason was the murder of Maddie Clifton was brutal and intentional which caused prolonged suffering. The defendant displayed callousness and ruthlessness during the murder, calmly continuing with his life and even assisting in the search. Additionally, he slept on top of Maddie's body for seven days. These actions indicate a level of maturity and understanding beyond mere immaturity or impulsivity. However, the judge acknowledged Joshua's rehabilitation and positive changes since the murder. The case may be reviewed again in 2024, 25 years after the crime, potentially resulting in either a reaffirmation of life without parole or a reversal to a maximum of 40 years, which offers Joshua hope of freedom in his mid-50s. We hope you found this episode enjoyable. Regarding Joshua's fate, opinions differ. Some believe he deserves lifelong imprisonment due to his potential psychopathic tendencies and the risk of reoffending if released. Others argue that he deserves a second chance, considering his personal growth and exemplary behavior as a prisoner. Do you think he deserves a second chance? Until next time, stay curious, stay brave, and stay a little dark.